Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, the mutilated bodies of two young women are found close to one another in a river. It quickly becomes obvious to investigators they are dealing with a sadistic serial killer who strangles his victims. Can the authorities find the person responsible before they hurt someone else? Welcome to episode 26 of They Walk Among America. A joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us. The award-winning true crime podcast. Oregon, May 10th, 1969. George Montgomery and his son were fishing on Bundy Bridge, positioned close to the Long Tom River. The almost 60-mile tributary of the Willamette River was a good spot for catching bass and carp. But around 2.30pm, the Montgomerys came across something floating in the water. Approximately 12 miles south of Corvallis and 5 miles north of Salem, the bloated body of a woman in a pink knitted dress was found tied to a car transmission. Her remains should have been easily weighed down due to the female's petite frame. After police from the Benton County Sheriff's Office arrived and were called to the edge of the river where the body had risen to the surface... They saw that a rope and a cloth had been wrapped around the woman's neck. Copper wire and cords had been used to tie the body to the transmission from a Ford vehicle. An underwriter's knot was used, which is often employed on electrical cords for items such as lamps, to remove the strain where it is connected. The body was recovered from the river, and taken to Portland where an autopsy was performed. Dr. William Brady, the state medical examiner, could not conclusively say when the woman had been killed, but he believed given the state of her body she had been in the water for approximately two weeks. 
The amount of time the remains had been submerged made it impossible to tell if the young woman had been raped or assaulted. It appeared as though the cause of death was manual or ligature strangulation. The hyoid bone had been broken, which corroborated the assumption that she had been strangled, but there were other injuries found. Defensive wounds like bruises and cuts showed that the woman had likely tried to fight off her killer, but there were also burn marks discovered along the sides of her ribs that appeared to have been inflicted after death. There were two small puncture holes found on either side of her ribs that looked to have been caused by a needle of some sort, but the medical examiner could not explain the bizarre burns. While the physical evidence such as the wires and cloth were sent to the crime lab for analysis, the woman's remains were compared to dental records of females who had been reported missing in the area. The police already suspected who the victim was based on her clothing, but after viewing dental records, she was positively identified. Her name was Linda Dawn Saley. Linda worked as a secretary and was a part-time student at Portland State University. The 22-year-old had been reported missing just over two weeks earlier on April 23rd. She failed to return home that evening to Beaverton, where Linda lived with her parents. She had been shopping at Lloyd Centre in Portland trying to find a birthday present for her boyfriend. She purchased blue trousers, a shirt and a watch band. A red Volkswagen Beetle was found abandoned at the Lloyd Centre near the pool where her lifeguard boyfriend worked. She planned on meeting him to celebrate his birthday after her shopping trip, but she never showed up. When Linda did not arrive for work, her colleagues and family reported her missing. No further clues regarding her disappearance were uncovered until her body was seen floating at the river's edge. District Attorney Frank Knight told reporters that the authorities believed that Linda Saley's body had been thrown from the Bundy Bridge, close to the area where she was found. Police divers continued to search the river for more evidence relating to Linda's death. On the evening of Monday, May 12th, they made another horrifying discovery. Just 50 feet from where Linda's body was found, the remains of another woman had come to the surface near the bridge on the Irish Bend. It seemed as though this female had been in the water for a lot longer than Linda. Just like Linda, the woman had been tied to a car part, the cylinder head from a Chevy. The body had been secured using copper wires, and the same type of cloth was found knotted around the weight. This time, the police knew immediately who the victim was. Salem native, 19-year-old Oregon State University chemistry student, Karen Elena Sprinker. Karen had been reported missing on March 27th when she did not show up for lunch with her mother at the Myron Frank department store in Salem. 
Michael Linda Saley, Karen's car was found abandoned in the parking lot. The vehicle was locked on the fifth level. It offered no signs as to where the teenager was or if there had been a struggle. Karen Sprinker's autopsy was also performed by Dr. Brady in Portland. More similarities with Linda Saley were uncovered. Ligature marks were discovered around her neck, which indicated that she had been strangled with a rope. Karen was found wearing the clothes she had last been seen in, apart from her bra. Although she was wearing one, it was too big. When the undergarment was removed, the medical examiner found that it had been stuffed with tissue paper to cover large wounds where her breasts should have been. The killer had removed the breasts before redressing the body and disposing of it in Willamette River. The police feared that a serial killer was loose in the area. Besides Linda and Karen, two other women had gone missing the year prior, and there had been attempted abductions reported around western Oregon. On April 21, 1969, Sharon Wood, a 24-year-old mother of two, was leaving work, walking to her car which was parked in a garage off Broadway in Portland. As she looked around for the vehicle, a man approached her and tapped her on the shoulder. He pulled out a gun and pointed it directly at her. Sharon immediately tried to run, but the man put his arm around her neck and held her in a headlock, but she managed to bite down on his thumb so hard that it broke the skin. In a rage, the man threw her to the floor and hit her head against the concrete repeatedly. As they struggled, a passing motorist just so happened to drive towards them, and the attacker fled the scene. The following day, the day before Linda Saley was last seen alive, a 15-year-old girl, Gloria Smith, was making her way to Parish Junior High School after a dentist appointment. She was approached by a man who was holding what looked like a plastic gun. He told the girl, I want you to come with me. I won't hurt you. The teenager did not do as he ordered, and so he grabbed her shoulder. She pulled away and continued on her journey, but the man kept following her. As they walked down the street, the girl noticed a woman working in her garden, so she called out for help. The man fled on foot before getting into a blue or green coloured car, driving away at speed. Gloria Smith would go on to describe the man as being around 30, with a large build and freckles. The police wondered if the attempted abductions were linked to the bodies found in the river. Detectives continued to search the Long Tom River for clues and other possible victims. Still, by May 23rd, all that was found was a coat belonging to Linda Saley. The police believed that her body was probably wrapped in the item of clothing when it was thrown from the nearby bridge and it had come undone. 
The crime lab had analysed the wires and pieces of cloth found with the victims. It was determined that the knots used were similar to those made by electricians. The cloth was described as being pink or red in colour, and it was thought to be the type used by mechanics. Frustratingly, as it was widely produced, investigators were unable to narrow down their search. Instead, they would focus on where the car parts had originated. The transmission found tied to the body of Linda Saley was from a 1949 or 1950 Ford. It weighed around 35 pounds. A 50-pound six-cylinder Chevrolet engine was discovered tied to Karen Sprinker's body. Investigators checked local scrapyards to determine if the parts had been bought or stolen. Detectives from Benton County, Corvallis City, Oregon State and the surrounding counties were assigned to a task force based in Corvallis. A few days after Karen Sprinker's body was found, a call came in to the Corvallis police from a student at Oregon State University. She said she had just been on a date with a man who made her feel extremely uncomfortable. The student explained that a man called her dorm at around 9pm on May 14th. He wanted to meet someone as he had just come home from serving in Vietnam. Initially, the student said she had too much work to do, but the caller convinced her to go on a date after he said he had been at Walter Reed Hospital and learned about a new studying method. She agreed to meet with him, but as it was late, instead of going out, she invited him into the lounge of the dormitory. He began to demonstrate this new study method by rubbing the student's shoulders and telling her to think of something sad. He told her to think about the two women that had been killed, something he said was, quote, an awful thing to have happened. The man convinced the student to take a walk with him to get a coke at the drive-in. He then began asking her questions that made her nervous. She was asked why she should trust him and what would she do if he tried to rape her. He even asked how she knew he would not take her to the river and strangle her. As soon as she returned to her dorm, the student alerted the police. Other students from Oregon State University had reported getting calls from a Vietnam veteran who said he had been a prisoner of war and that he wanted some company, but most had turned him down. The police asked the student to call them if the man she had met asked for another date. If he did, she should persuade him to come to the dorm where officers would be waiting to intercept him. On May 25th, the man did call again. The student was able to delay him long enough to contact the police. As officers arrived at the dormitory, the man readied himself for what he thought would be a second date. The police had been given a description of the caller. Aged around 30 with a big build, fair or reddish hair and freckles. 
When a man matching that description walked into the lounge, officers took him aside and asked him his name and where he lived. He answered without hesitation. He said his name was Jerry Brudos and he lived in Salem. He said that he was an unemployed electrician who was in the area doing yard work. He lived with his wife and two children at 3123 Centre Street. Because Brudos was so forthcoming and had not committed any crimes that the police knew of, he was allowed to leave the dormitory, but the police remained suspicious. Not only did Brudos match the description of the suspect who had attempted multiple abductions, but he also sometimes drove a blue car, similar to the one 15-year-old Gloria Smith had described. The police began to look into Brudos's background, which only heightened their suspicions. Jerome Henry Brudos was born in South Dakota on January 31, 1939. He lived with his parents Eugene and Eileen and his older brother Larry. The family moved around several different properties throughout California and Oregon. An unplanned pregnancy, young Brudos's birth was met with disappointment. His parents wanted a daughter, as they already had a son. Discipline was strict in the Brudos household, especially for the youngest member of the family. Punishments were often enforced by his mother. Brudos was frequently sick as a child. He was prone to infection as well as the usual childhood illnesses at the time, like measles and laryngitis. Young Brudos suffered persistent fungal infections and repeatedly needed hospital treatment. He claimed he suffered from excruciating headaches, for which an assessment by an eye doctor was recommended. Upon testing, it was found the youngster had normal vision. Investigation into the cause of the headache stopped when the optician gave him a prescription pair of spectacles as a placebo. Although this did not work, and Brudo still claimed to be enduring the pain in his head. As the family often moved around so his father could find work, Brudos was held back in school and found it hard to maintain friendships. By the time Brudos was a teenager, the family had settled in Oregon. He attended high school in Salem and Corvallis. It was in Oregon where he first experimented wearing women's underwear. The opportunity arose for him to sneak into his friend's home and try on her clothing. At 17, Brudos was described as being big, with light red hair and pink acne-scarred skin. As much as he desired female attention, he never seemed to be able to get it. In April 1956, he offered a 17-year-old girl a ride home, and she agreed. Instead of travelling to her house as he said he would, Brudos drove to an abandoned farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. He ordered the teenager to strip off her clothes 
When she refused, he pulled her from the car and beat her mercilessly. Luckily, a couple nearby heard the girl's screams, and they ran to the scene. Rudos feigned as though he had been trying to help his victim, but the police were called and Brudos was arrested. Back at his home, officers found photographs of a naked teenage girl and a collection of women's underwear. Brudos confessed that he had been stealing the undergarments from his neighbour's washing lines. He had also convinced a girl who lived nearby to come to his house under the guise that he knew who was behind the thefts. Once there, he left the room before coming back wearing a mask and forcing her to strip naked and pose for photographs. Afterwards, he left the room again and returned without the mask, pretending that he had been locked in by the attacker. The girl had been too afraid to report him. Brudos was arrested for assault and battery. He was sent to Oregon State Hospital in Salem, a location that nine years later would be the setting for the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. During his time at the hospital, Brudos was allowed to attend school during the day and return to the ward at night. In interviews with psychiatrists, he spoke about incidents in his childhood that would later be believed to have altered his psyche and helped shape him into a dangerous predator. At the age of five, Brudos had found a pair of high-heeled peep-toe shoes in the local junkyard. The boy retrieved them and wore the shoes around his home. What was innocent curiosity was treated as deviance by his mother. She had far less time for her youngest son than she did for her eldest boy. She berated him and burned the shoes to teach him never to do it again but instead it just made young Brudos more curious. He stole shoes from teachers and family friends. In one incident, his attempt to steal a pair of shoes stored in the classroom by a teacher was foiled by a fellow pupil. Brudos was humiliated in front of his classmates. As he got older, Brudos became more interested in women's underwear. He would later explain that he had begun stealing underwear from neighbours when he was 15, and he liked to try them on. He spoke about a fantasy of building an underground tunnel where he could keep a girl captive and force her to take her clothes off. Anne Rule wrote about Brudos's formative years in one of her books, Lust Killer. She said that Brudos was given a provisional diagnosis of adjustment reaction of adolescence with sexual deviation fetishism. Following his nine-month stay at Oregon State Hospital, Jerome Brudos, or Jerry as he was more commonly referred to, was diagnosed with borderline schizophrenic reaction, but he was not believed to be a threat to others. Brudos moved back to his parents' home. Neither his mother nor father hid their shame. 
he eventually graduated from high school in the lower third of his class. Rudos decided to attend college, studying at a different institution with a focus on electronics. However, he never settled into education. His attendance and motivation were poor, and he soon left. Instead, he joined the army in the spring of 1959. Jerry Brudos would eventually tell a chaplain about his violent dreams, where a woman would try to seduce him, and he would beat her. Following this confession, he was referred to the army psychiatrist. Brudos did not conceal his fixation with women and his violent thoughts, so he was eventually given a psychological discharge from the service. He again moved back home, and his parents, not wanting their son to stay long, relegated him to stay in the shed. Brudos again returned to college. He eventually became an electronics technician, and in 1961 he got a job working at a local radio station in Corvallis. Here he met 17-year-old Ralphine Metzer, who went by the name Darcy. Darcy's parents were not fond of the older man their daughter was dating. Nevertheless, the couple got married in September 1961, when Darcy was pregnant with the couple's first child. A little girl, Megan, was born early the following year and the couple would welcome a son Jason five years later in 1967. The family lived in Portland for a while, on a street the name of which had come up in a missing persons inquiry a year earlier. A young woman had been selling encyclopedias in the area when she disappeared. Family life became strained. Jerry Brudos did not sustain continued employment for any length of time, so the couple and their children moved around frequently, much like Brudos's own childhood. Also mirroring his own experiences, Brudos withheld affection from his children. Darcy also spent more and more time away from home. Her husband had been requesting sexual acts she was not comfortable with, and she failed to see his motivation. He would often ask his wife to be the subject of his photography, urging her to pose naked or in high-heeled shoes. The relationship between husband and wife had soured so much over the years that Darcy had refused to even have her husband attend the birth of their son. Jerry Brudos took the opportunity of being alone while his wife was in the hospital to stalk the streets of Portland where they were living at the time. The couple subsequently moved to Corvallis, renting a two-storey home that was owned by someone who worked with automobiles. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Following the tip-off that led police to Jerry Brudos, investigators could not find any criminal behaviour in his adult life that might connect him to the crimes. Still, they decided to question Brudos again anyway. The now-renowned Lieutenant Jim Stovall was on the case. Before Brudos was even in the picture, Stovall had detailed the killer's traits and attributes. Due to the use of wire and the electrical knot, the officer believed that the person they were hunting was employed as an electrician or in a similar role. Despite being skilled in his profession, it was likely thought that the suspect was sporadically employed, moving from job to job as the crimes were carried out at varying times. Based on the ages of the victims... Lieutenant Stovall felt that the perpetrator was also young, guessing his age to be between 20 and 30. When making assumptions about the killer's childhood, Stovall suspected that their mother was a dominant force in their life. They had a hatred for her. Stovall believed this to be the case because of the mutilation of the victims' bodies. Another acute insight was Stovall's theory that the killer probably did not play sports, as the method of murder was strangulation, and the victims did not appear to have been beaten. Jerry Brudos might not have initially seemed like an ideal suspect, because his teenage crimes did involve beating. The investigators went to Brudos' home on Centre Street twice, before they were handed something which would almost seal Brudos's fate. The amateur photographer supposedly used his garage as a darkroom to develop pictures he had taken. It was here where detectives saw some items that looked familiar. Wires and ropes. Brudos told the officers to take a piece of rope if they wanted, and they did. One of them, B.J. Miller, also took some wire cuttings from the floor. The 15-year-old, who had almost been abducted by a man matching Brudos's description, was able to identify him in a lineup. However, the police wanted more evidence. Brudos was placed under surveillance, and a few days later the authorities obtained a warrant to search his car the blue car he often borrowed from a friend. When they arrived to examine the vehicle, it was immaculate. 
Brudos explained this away by saying that his son had rolled down the window when they drove through a car wash. By May 28th, the police had enough to make an arrest. Jerry Brudos was to be taken into custody and charged with assault with a dangerous weapon for the attempted kidnap. But before an arrest could be made, the officers watching his home saw Brudos leave the property with his wife. Police tailed the couple's vehicle along Interstate 5, and it seemed as though they were heading towards the Canadian border. Before Darcy and Brudos could escape north, they were instructed to pull over. Darcy was in the driver's seat. Her husband had barely managed to hide under a blanket in the back. Jerry Brudos was taken to the Salem police station and when he was booked in, he was found to be wearing women's underwear. After a few days in custody, Brudos wanted to talk. He had told the detectives his lawyer had advised him not to, but Brudos seemed to enjoy finding out what the police knew. Brudos began speaking about his fascination with high heels. He said he collected them. He spoke about how he stole underwear from clotheslines, but eventually explained that taking the items of clothing was not enough. He escalated his criminal activities by breaking into someone's home and attacking them. Brudos told the detectives that he had followed a woman home in Portland in 1967. When she was asleep, he quietly entered the property, but she woke up. He said that he choked her unconscious and raped her before fleeing with the woman's shoes and bra. Brudos was asked if anything else had happened in Portland. He began to speak about the first murder he committed. In January 1968, just before his 29th birthday, a young woman came to his home selling encyclopedias. She had seen him attending to his garden and she thought she could possibly make a sale. Unfortunately, the young woman had no way of knowing what danger Jerry Brudos posed. The detectives knew immediately who Brudos was describing. He was talking about 19-year-old Linda Slauson. Brudos told Linda that he had guests visiting so they should talk about the encyclopedias in the basement. While Linda sat down and began to tell him about the books, Brudos walked behind her, picked up a two-by-four plank of wood and struck her so hard in the back of the head she immediately lost consciousness. Once Linda was on the ground, Brudos choked her to death. Brudos would describe how at the time his mother was there along with his daughter, so he sent them out of the house to get some burgers while he tried to hide Linda Slauson's body. Under the cover of darkness, he put her body into the car. He drove to a bridge over the Willamette River. He did not want to look suspicious, so he acted as though he was changing attire. Before he threw the body off the bridge... He would use a hacksaw to cut off Linda's left foot. 
He explained that he specifically chose her left foot because he was right-handed. Rudos took the foot home with him and kept it in a basement freezer, using it to model shoes. Eventually, when the severed foot began to decompose, he threw it over the bridge too. Rudos had used car parts to weigh down both Linda's body and the foot. Neither were ever found. Linda Slauson had five siblings most of whom lived at home with their mother, Mildred. Linda had been reported missing, but due to the nature of her work going door to door, the company she was employed by did not know where she had been when she was last seen alive. Tragically, the trail went cold quickly. Rudos was asked about Jan Whitney a 23-year-old University of Oregon student who went missing 10 months after Linda Slauson was killed. Jan had been on her way home from a Thanksgiving celebration in Eugene, Oregon on November 26, 1968. Rudo said the car Jan was travelling in had broken down, pulled up on the side of the road. Two men were with her, but they were not helping her fix the vehicle. Brudos convinced the three of them to get into his car. He said he could help. He dropped the men off along the I-5 and drove to his home in Salem, where he had recently moved. After parking in the garage and telling Jan he just had to grab his tools, Brudos came back empty-handed. He got into the back seat behind Jan and told her to close her eyes and try to explain how to tie a shoelace. While she entertained his unusual request, Brudos took a leather strap and made a loop in it before pulling it over Jan's head and tightening it. He got out of the car and closed the door on the strap so she couldn't move. After Jan choked to death, Rudos raped her body in the car and then suspended it from a rope in his workshop. For days, he repeatedly dressed and raped her body, chronicling the events with his camera. Before he got rid of Linda's remains, he cut off her breasts, made a plastic mould and tried to make a paperweight. Rudos seemed disappointed with the finished product, but he still kept it. He would highlight to the detectives that he had almost been caught. Someone had crashed into his workshop while he was in there, and Jan's body had still been hanging inside. There was a hole in the wall, but the police officer did not see the body when they assessed the damage. Once again, Brudos crudely tossed the victim's body over a bridge, but he made sure to cover his tracks. He towed Jan's car to a rest stop and left it there. It was found some time later. Jerry Brudo said that he had been driving around on March 27, 1969, when he saw a young woman in high heels that caught his eye. He unsuccessfully tried to find out where she was heading. Instead, he decided to approach someone else. 
He saw Karen Sprinker, who was walking towards her car in the Myron Frank department store parking lot. Brudos had a pistol and grabbed Karen by the shoulder. He warned her not to run or scream, and she complied. Karen did whatever she was told. Brudos said she would be allowed to leave once he drove her to his workshop. There he raped her and forced her to stand nude for photographs. He made her wear the stolen shoes he had in his collection and put on the underwear he had previously concealed in a box. After Karen complied with every demand, Brudos forced a noose around her neck and attached it to a winch, pulling the rope so that her feet could barely reach the ground. Watching her struggle, Brudos pulled it a few more times until Karen Sprinker took her final breath. Brudos tried again to make paperweights from Karen's breasts. This time he cut both of them off, but still he was unhappy with the final result. After hiding her body for a few hours which he sexually violated... Brudos redressed her in a black bra, stuffing it with paper towels so the blood would not leak in his car. He threw her body over a bridge into the Long Tom River. The detectives asked Brudos if he still had the photographs of Karen Sprinker, but he said they had been destroyed. Brudos went on to admit the attempted abductions of Sharon Wood and Gloria Smith on April 21st and 22nd of that year. The day after that, he had travelled to the Lloyd Centre to try and abduct another woman. Brudos had a fake police badge with him. When he saw Linda Saley walking towards her car, he confronted her and accused her of shoplifting. Linda was surprised, but agreed to go with him. He drove to Salem and took Linda into his garage. Brudo said that he was almost caught by his wife when she called out to him that dinner was nearly ready. Brudos described how he tied Linda up before he went inside to eat with his family. Earlier in the interview with police, he said that he had only killed women on weekdays because weekends were family time. Brudos bragged that Linda had got free of the ropes when he returned, but she had not fled or called for help. When he began to try and restrain her again, she fought bravely, but Brudos was much larger and stronger than her. Rudos told the detectives that he used a leather strap to strangle her, and he raped her as she died. Rudos then told the detectives something that explained the burn marks found on Linda's ribs. He said that he hung her body from a hook and inserted needles into her skin. Rudos then attached leads to the needles and sent electricity through them to see if it would make Linda's body move. It didn't. After another day of defiling her remains, 
Brudos decided not to remove Linda Saley's breasts as he had done with Jan Whitney and Karen Sprinker, because her nipples did not look exactly how he wanted them to. While Jerry Brudos was confessing to four murders, the police were securing a search warrant for his rented home, the garage and workshop. Brudos had called his wife before he confessed and told her to get rid of boxes of clothes and photographs, but Darcy had been too afraid. After Brudos was charged with Karen Sprinker's murder, Officers descended on the property to search for evidence. In the workshop, investigators found the rope, the winch, the leather strap, the cord and wire and a box of women's shoes. Inside a locked toolbox, they found photographs, some showing the victims' faces, others just the silhouette of a woman suspended from a wooden beam. Jan Whitney was pictured with a hood over her head and a mirror beneath her body as she was hung from the hook. In the reflection of a mirror, Brudos can clearly be seen holding the camera. There was a photograph of Karen Sprinker sometime before her death, her face frozen in terror as she stands dressed in just her underwear and high heels. Keys found match some of the victims' homes and cars. Brudos had kept them as trophies. The investigators also uncovered a note with the names and numbers of students at Oregon State University. In the attic of the home, officers discovered around 40 more pairs of shoes and dozens of items of women's clothing, including lingerie, bras, girdles and underwear. In the living room, investigators found paperweights made from the women's severed breasts and photographs of Brudos in women's underwear. On June 5th, 1969, Jerry Brudos pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity in relation to Karen Sprinker's murder. He had not yet been charged with the others. Brudos was ordered to undergo psychiatric evaluations while grand jury hearings were held for the other killings. Officers searched his back garden and his mother's motorhome while he was assessed by several psychiatrists. Dr. Ivor Campbell said that Brudos displayed symptoms of a psychopathic personality disorder with sexually deviant behaviour. Dr. Campbell wrote in his report that Brudos had disposed of his victims' bodies as though they were garbage because they were no longer useful to him. It was said his resentment towards his mother contributed to his behaviour. Ultimately, Jerry Brudos was deemed sane, with an above-average IQ. However, he was also diagnosed as having, quote, an antisocial personality manifested by fetishism, transvesticism, exhibitionism, voyeurism, and especially sadism. With the enormity of evidence found in his home and the testimony that he was sane, 
Brudos was charged with three counts of murder and assault. No charges were filed for Linda Slauson's murder, as there was only circumstantial evidence and Brudos's confession to link him to her disappearance. On June 27th, Brudos's attorney Dale Drake said, The defendant has been examined by psychiatrists. An EEG has been run and we have also examined his prior medical histories. Based upon these reports and our own discussions, we find the defendant is able to assist us in his defence. Brudos then changed his pleas from not guilty by reason of insanity to guilty. When asked why by Judge Val Sloper, Brudos replied, Well, Your Honour, I did it. Brudos asked to be sentenced the same day. He had been due to go on trial three days later. He admitted to killing the women with premeditation and malice and gave brief descriptions of each in court. Brudos was handed three consecutive life sentences for the murders. However, the assault charge was dismissed. Following the sentencing, Karen Sprinker's mother told reporters, We are so relieved that it didn't drag out into a long trial. Now he will be where he can't do any more damage. The following month, on July 27th, a man named Henry Allison went to a spot on the Willamette River, about half a mile downstream from the Independence Bridge, where he had seen something a few days prior. Wedged against a log was the heavily decomposed body of a woman. Tied to the remains were pieces of railroad iron and cylindrical weights. After a dental comparison, the body was positively identified as Jan Whitney. The remains had been submerged for eight months, but as the water level decreased during summer, her body was revealed. Jerry and Darcy Brudos's children had been taken into the care of the state shortly after Brudos's arrest. The district attorney alleged that Darcy Brudos had effectively abandoned the children, leaving them with her parents. But more than that, the authorities also claimed that Darcy had been a willing participant in at least one of the murders. A grand jury hearing was held on August 6, 1969, on the basis of testimony from one of the Brudos's neighbours. She claimed she saw Brudos and Darcy forcing a woman into their car on the day Karen Sprinker was reported missing. The grand jury returned an indictment and Darcy was arrested in connection with Karen Sprinker's death. State prosecutors argued that she was an accomplice. In Oregon, that charge carries a maximum sentence of up to life in prison. Darcy Brudos pleaded not guilty to the charge on August 14th and was brought to trial the following month. 
The prosecution argued that Mary Patterson had witnessed Darcy help her serial killer husband force a woman into their car, who was covered in a blanket but fighting to get free. It was believed that Karen Sprinker was abducted on March 27th at around midday and then killed approximately an hour later. The defence showed that it was unlikely anyone could have seen the Brudos' car from the house next door as Mary Patterson alleged, especially in such detail. When asked why she had not called the police after supposedly witnessing something so horrifying, the Brudos' neighbour replied that her sister had told her not to. The Brudos' seven-year-old daughter was called to testify in the trial and she said that she had met a girl called Karen at their home during spring vacation, but the girl was not able to identify Karen from any photographs. Brudos' older brother Larry also took the stand and explained to the court that Darcy was not the kind of person who liked to fight. In contrast, he said that his brother was very outspoken about what he wanted people to do and was overbearing at times. This could lead to violence. As Brudos had pleaded guilty, the evidence in relation to Karen Sprinker's murder was presented at Darcy's trial. The moulds made from her breasts, photographs taken of her in the workshop, and the car engine Brudos's friend William Miller testified had been removed from his car by Brudos. The psychiatrist Dr. Henry Dixon Jr. addressed jurors and said that Darcy was unlikely to participate in sexually deviant acts. He described her as passive and submissive. As Jerry Brudos's trial had not come to fruition after he admitted his guilt, members of the public packed the gallery of the courthouse for his wife's trial. Darcy testified in her own defence that her marriage had seemed normal until a few years into the relationship. Problems had arisen when Brudos failed to maintain steady employment and he started to request if he could photograph his wife naked. Darcy said that Brudos had worn women's clothes in front of her before. She thought he was joking around but then she had found photographs of him wearing women's underwear, left out in the open throughout their home. Darcy Brudos also spoke about not being allowed in the garage. Brudos had told her that he was developing photographs inside, and if she opened the door, it would destroy them. Darcy said that Brudos would make sure she told him when she would be home equipped that it was so he could get the blonde out of the house before she got back, and Darcy took it as a joke. The defendant explained that after her husband was arrested, he had called her and told her to burn photographs and clothes in the workshop, but she had been too scared. She called her lawyer instead who advised her not to. On the day Karen Sprinker went missing, Darcy claimed that she had been at a friend's home for the morning until mid-afternoon, 
and then she went to her parents' house with the children until the evening. She said that Brudos was supposed to collect them at around 6pm, but he did not turn up until after 9. Darcy went on to say that she tried to avoid being at home as much as possible because she did not enjoy being there. Still, she had never suspected her husband was a murderer. The defence were able to prove that Brudos had a significant degree of control over his wife, in that she would not disobey him when he told her never to go in the workshop. She would not question his reasons for wearing women's clothing or making her pose naked for photographs. Ultimately, jurors found Darcy Brudos not guilty of aiding and abetting, but just as she was released, Darcy was rearrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact on suspicion of helping her husband almost evade arrest when he hid in the back of the car she was driving. However, a judge would dismiss the charges by the end of October. Darcy Brudos was able to regain custody of the children by December 1969. The following year, she divorced her husband, changed her name and moved away. Jerry Brudos filed for an appeal almost immediately after he was sentenced. His first few years in prison were peppered with hospital visits for beatings and rectal bleeding, what his prison folds note as hemorrhoids or, quote, other. Sex offenders are often segregated from the other inmates due to the disdain that is felt towards them. Jerry Brudos was not provided with that privilege. Numerous appeals were filed and rejected between 1969 and the late 70s, and he became eligible for parole shortly after. During his time in prison, Brudos was interviewed by John Douglas and Robert Resler from the FBI Criminal Profiling Unit. John Douglas wrote about the interaction in his book Mindhunter. He described Brudos as heavy-set, round-faced, polite and cooperative. Despite giving a detailed confession to the police, Brudos told Douglas that he did not recall the murders because he suffered from hypoglycemic blackouts as a result of low blood sugar. Douglas said Brudos had traits often seen in serial killers, an obsession with improvement, in that each of his crimes followed a similar pattern. But he experimented with different methods of torture, killing, mutilation, and the taking of mementos from the crime. Brudos also escalated, from an infatuation in his childhood, to theft, break-ins, assault, rape, and finally murder. Jerry Brudos is often referred to as the lust killer or the shoe fetish killer, but he is not unique in his paraphilic preferences. Paraphilias are abnormal sexual impulses that manifest in urges or fantasies. 
fetishism, as seen in Brudos's case, is a sexual impulse that is associated with an inanimate object, such as a shoe or women's clothing. For Brudos, it was more than seeing the item itself. He wore them and forced others to wear them for him. Around the time of Karen Sprinker's abduction, two girls told the police they saw a large man dressed in women's clothing in the parking garage where Karen's car was later found abandoned. It is believed that Brudos would often dress in women's clothing and exhibited what is termed transvestic fetishism, where he would become sexually aroused by simply wearing female clothing. Brudos was also a necrophiliac. He would rape his victims after they had died. In prison, Brudos became an almost model inmate. The parole board denied him parole hearings in the mid-90s and assured the victims' families he would not be granted parole. But Brudos kept appealing. However, while still serving three life sentences... Jerome Henry Brudos died of liver cancer in 2006. He was 67 years old and had been in prison for 37 years. After his death, Jim Stovall, the lieutenant who investigated Brudos's crime, said, He was one of the true monsters of the United States, or the world perhaps. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com and for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.